I don't know how else to start but to say that if we look at a very close microscopic view of life, this is a sobering conclusion. We are broken people. Every one of us in this room, to a lesser or greater degree, whether we are blind to our situation or not, this is who we are. This is reality. In fact, there are a number of passages of which I'm not going to go into that actually make this very point, but I want you to see it because of this reason. Look at this world. Doesn't matter what country you go to, while you can find good things and while there are feel-good stories, this is a reality. In many places, a majority, a great majority of places all over this world, there's division. Whether it's civil war within a country or within a family, even within an individual, it's rampant. Whether there's hatred, all you need to do is, that's why some brethren are on Facebook, because you see it. You see hateful things. It's on the news. We see it in very crass ways, even in regular conversations to or about people, this type of hatred vitriol speech and we see death whether it be a emotional mental or ultimately this physical picture because we live in a physical world we see all kinds of death not because someone dies peacefully necessarily although that happens but because this world is absolutely broken in fact it is from time to time Whoever it is makes a decision to be public about it because it's on social media that someone will come out and say something to this very effect that I am a broken person. And what's interesting about this is that you're hearing these words or similar words from followers of Jesus. And yes, we can talk about the scriptures and saying, wait a second, you are healed in Christ. And that, that's the whole point of the sermon here. But we're talking about Christians, those who have been saved, who've been forgiven, who still feel broken because we live in this world and we live in the flesh. People who want to follow God. And so what I'm wanting for us to see is this scripture. Garland read for us out of um, Isaiah chapter 61. And if you notice, there is a slight difference. Jesus doesn't quote word for word from Isaiah 50, uh, 61. At some points, he quotes word for word, but then there are other words that he changes up. Look at what Jesus says in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. Luke chapter 4, verse 16, Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book... He found the place where it was written. And again, notice these words. I'm reading out of Luke 4, verse 18, and up on the screen is, well, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted 
to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. What he does is he takes the concept of Isaiah 61 and he quotes from them and then changes a few of the words to naturally bring out this point that he's wanting to make because he takes that part of Psalm 61 or various parts of Psalm 61 and then he says, or at least the narrator, Luke, says, then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant that sat down, and then all the eyes who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now let that sink in for a second. Because I can just imagine the potential for the context of this situation where people feel good. They're at the synagogue. They're worshiping God. They're learning of his word. And then here comes this very sobering passage. Sobering in light of the fact that we're talking about the people of God in the Old Testament scriptures who are on the brink of going into captivity. To hear that you have those who are brokenhearted, those who are captive, those who are blind, and those who are oppressed, but salvation was going to come. There's a great hope in that. And people are wondering, what are you talking about? Well, go one step further. What was the context of Israel's life during this moment when Jesus was reading the scripture? You see, Israel is not a truly sovereign nation at this time. They're under Roman rule. And many of them felt oppressed as a nation. And they wanted to have their Savior to come into this world and bring Israel back to its pinnacle of yesteryear. And so they could in some way relate to it until Jesus applied it to himself. Jesus said today, this scripture is fulfilled in your, in, your, in your hearing, all bore witness in verse 22, and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And after he goes on and says, you will say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. And he goes on talking about all these things. Then verse 28, all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. And so all the context has to do with Jesus fulfilling this prophecy in their midst. There is the message nonetheless. And the message once again is that the spirit of the Lord was upon him. He was anointed to preach the gospel to the poor, to send and heal the brokenhearted. And when you look at the life of Jesus Christ, look at the people who were in fact brokenhearted. Those who were blind. Those who were lame. Those who look at life and wonder, what hope is there? And when you go further and look at the lives that we have as Christians, it is a very interesting state because while there is rejoicing that goes on in our lives, so many of us, even soon after we become children of God, we get sucked back into this world or we get sucked back into the darkness from which we have been saved. And here's what takes place when we come to a building like today. You come into the building 
And unbeknownst to us, and we've heard sermons along these lines, we shake hands, we give hugs, we kiss each other, and we say, how are you doing? And everyone is fine. And deep down inside, we're not fine. We're lonely. We're beaten up. We're downtrodden. We're filled with anxiety. But we go through the motions outwardly that there's hope. We go through the motions outwardly that life is great. Because if I were to open my heart to you, it would be too painful. Because things that are going on right now, you don't want to know about. And if I told you, and I'm going to get into this in the latter part of this lesson, things may not turn out well for me if I told you. Here's what goes on. In other words, Christians... Just because we've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ doesn't mean that it's all good. We know this tr to be true, but yet, sometimes we don't teach enough on the soberingness of the reality of our lives. This morning, Carrie Lynn, she said, Daddy, did you hear this song? And I forgot the name of the song. It's one Leslie was teaching the kids downstairs, but it's like, because I'm in Jesus, I'm happy all the time. You know what you want to talk about? Okay, yeah. And yeah, all, yeah. And... And I could not help as she's telling me these words of this message this morning. You know, it seems an absolute paradox. It almost seems um, just contradictory when James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials because it doesn't seem like joy at all. And we sing, I'm happy all the time, but I'm not happy. And so these moments are there. Christians still have brokenness after they become Christians, right? Believers become, uh, are still broken, not from a standpoint that they haven't been saved, they haven't been healed from a standpoint of salvation and forgiveness is concerned. That's all, that's true. But we still live in this flesh. And here's what would not happen if we were not broken people after becoming children of God. We would not be urged or pled with to be faithful or rebuked for sinfulness as is written all throughout these New Testament letters of which I just give a tiny sampling of if that were not the case, right? If we were being faithful people, Paul would never say right here, I beseech you, brethren. It's a strong plea. I beseech you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice. That would not be needed, to beseech a Christian to be faithful if they already are healed and well. You would not have the Apostle Paul telling brethren in Ephesians chapter 4, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling. If they weren't walking worthy to begin with because they are healed and doing well. You would not have passages like Peter saying the same thing where he's urging them to be faithful. There would not be passages that deal with, with struggle and angst, like what Paul says in Romans chapter 7, that I'm betwixt between the two. You know, I want to do the Lord's will. I don't do it. I, I hate sin. I end up sinning. Woe is me, he says. In fact, look at the very last or second to last verse of Romans chapter 7, and you get the plight 
However this passage is parsed out, how, whatever we're talking about in, in its context, the message is abundantly clear. And I want you to see this message. Verse 24 of Romans 7, O wretched men that I am. I'm a broken person. That's the picture of what's being said here. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? This is a struggle that takes place. Galatians chapter 5, there's this war that continues to go on in the life of someone who is called upon the name of the Lord. Otherwise, this passage would not have been written. Let that sink in, Rick. And so if we were to take stock and notice here is the life of Christianity. I don't want it to be doom and gloom because, I mean, you've heard all the other sermons. I mean, we have salvation in Christ. There's rejoicing in that. But let's not fool ourselves. Just because we have salvation doesn't mean there aren't these trials that come our way. There aren't temptations that come our way. There aren't moments when we fail because of the flesh and because of outside forces that affect and influence my choices. <laughs> I come to realize I may have been saved by the blood of Jesus, but I still live in and amongst a broken world. And that includes Christians who live lives that show signs of brokenness. That's a harsh, sobering reality. Unfortunately, we're not the very best at healing for what all the reasons that are beyond the scope of this sermon, this message, just realize sometimes we mean well and sometimes we just don't mean well enough, right? So someone is in a broken state and we, as a congregation of God's people, and I think Steve, when I wasn't here, he had a sermon about the church being a hospital. Right? So we tend and care to one another. We would not put something on a wound that would make it worse. And yet, sometimes that's what happens. Even if it's unintentional, but sometimes, just like Julie and I will say to our kids, it's not, you know, well, mom and dad, I didn't mean to do that. And then we as parents, we say, well, what did you mean mom. to do? Were you intentional about healing someone? We don't heal by judging Christians. I guarantee you that's not going to help. Guaranteed. Someone is broken in their life and it's a brother and sister in Christ. And you know what sometimes we do? We say, you shouldn't be doing that. As if they didn't know that. And, and they're, well, I know I'm not supposed to be doing that. I mean, did you read Romans 7? The person knew what he should be doing and didn't do it either. But it happens. Right? God talks to Cain. says, Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desires for you. Oh, good. I'll never sin again. And then we judge, though. John chapter 8 and verse 7, you know, he was without sin. Let him cast the first stone. Because that's sometimes what we do. 
We may cast stones because the preacher or the elder or the high pillar, in, in my estimation, should know better. Brethren, we're human beings that needed salvation to begin with. We don't have a magic potion in the name of Jesus Christ that makes us perfect once we become children of God. So we struggle. Sometimes our struggle is in the ways of this world. In a variety of ways that we think are absolutely horrific. And to think that I would be involved in it, yes, I could be involved in it. I am not immune. None of us in this room, none of us in this world is 100% immune from temptations until we put off this flesh. Let me say it one more time, brethren. Until we put off this fleshly body, not a single soul who's ever walked on the face of the earth, not named Jesus, is not immune. Amen. In other words, it can happen to any of us at any time in our lives that we fall into temptation, that we become weak, and that we become guilty of living in sin. Not just sinning from time to time, living in it. Sometimes we're right here sitting next to each other and we're not the better for knowing it. And here's what else doesn't help. Well, I don't know it, so I can't help you. Well, that's true. There, there is a level, a superficial level of truth to it. But how many of us look each other in the eye? Last week, I was able to look into Miss Elizabeth's eyes. And all it took was one half of a second and I saw pain in her eyes. I saw the love of her husband. She never said a single word. You know what she needed? She needed a hug. We don't want to look each other in the eye because, well, there's a number of reasons. I don't know how to deal with your pain. I'm too lazy to deal with your pain because I've got my own pain I'm trying to deal with. I'm indifferent to your pain. I mean, there's a whole host of reasons. Brethren, as you're seeing, by only talk, not even getting into specifics, life is still messy after we, be, after we come to the cross of Jesus. The church, while it has been perfected by the blood of Jesus... It is a community of people who have been broken and needed salvation to begin with. And in the process of this healing, we still go through worldly ways of trying to help each other. And it's not the best all the time. And so we struggle with trying to help someone. But by judging them, we, we don't help their struggle. And I'll say this. Sometimes we have difficulty knowing the difference between talking about a situation and about someone without slandering their name. <clears throat> because we're not really thoughtful of how what my words say is going to come out, how it's going to affect them. And we need to be more thoughtful. We need to be more intentional that when I open my mouth, this, these yeah. words are going to be seasoned with grace. They will be seasoned with salt so that it benefits not only the person I'm speaking to, but especially the person I'm speaking about. So this is not how we heal if, if we want healing 
as a community of people that it's supposed to be a hospital. Here's some consequences. I've spoken about these consequences in the past, but I really want to focus in it right now. If, in fact, we are judgmental toward each other, you know, look across the room like, I don't know, Ted, I just looked at you, so I'm going to use you as him. Ted, you served as a deacon. Didn't you at one time? Okay, good. Okay, I thought so. Okay. And, and Ted's got whatever the sin is in his life. If it was just adults, I, I would have given a very specific situation that Jane would not have liked. Ted's guilty of sin, and we're going to bash Ted over the head. Don't have to, tell, don't have to find out the backstory, because that doesn't matter, right? He's guilty of sin. Until you compassionately take, go and find the backstory, and all of a sudden it's like, okay, you still sinned, and that's wrong. You should not, but now it's like, I, I get it. I understand. Maybe I can be more tender in my reaction towards you. If I beat Ted over the head with my judgmentalism, with my gossip, what happens in the future if Ted des decides to open up again? Do you think he will? Some brethren in this congregation, and I would venture in almost every single congregation. Now, when I say almost every, I'm going to probably want to say every congregation. But, you know, some churches are real small, and they just got started as a congregation. So they'll make an excuse or a reason or be the exception to the rule. But every congregation of history has it where someone has been burned by, not person of the world, but by their brother or sister in Christ. And when you take a, an environment in which we have to be right about every single thing, and we may not word it that way, but the environment breeds that mindset, then you will not have brethren speaking out. It's like, you know, in Bible study, no one wants to talk because if I'm wrong, then, you know, of course, and if we're right, we have good standing with God. But if I even say one thing that sounds wrong to someone else's ears, I'm going to be raked over the coals mentally, emotionally, even if they don't say anything to me directly. So I'm not going to say anything at all. It's that kind of environment where this person says, I'm not going to say anything to these people. They may be my brethren. But I won't want to share anything with them because when I say something to them, it's going to return on me as a weapon. That's not what the church is supposed to be, brethren. If we're going to notice the consequence where instead of our praying fervently and righteously for one another because we open up and we tell us. And this is something that, that uh, Phil had said recently, um, and, and I remember this the first year I was here. You know, it, it's been said in some congregations there is no problem. Not that there isn't, but no one ever talks about it. It's all under the surface. So on the appearance side of things, everything looks good. He said, here at Franklin, we've got a lot of issues, a lot of problems, because a lot of brethren open up and talk about these things. But it doesn't make us perfect about how we handle them when we talk about these things. And the consequence then is if I feel burned, I'm not going to want to talk to my brethren and I won't ask them to pray for me because here's what happens, right? We are told to confess our sins to one another and to pray for one another, right? So 
we can get it academically, biblically in our head, this is what we're supposed to do. But that's a powerful statement. It takes a lot of vulnerability. And I remember in particular when a family worshiped here, this one person involved in a, in a part of addiction went to his addiction um, group and then even um, the spouse went to this addiction group as, as a support for um, their spouse and said, I couldn't imagine in my life that I could open up in a 12-step process to complete strangers who I felt safe with but could not open up to my brothers and sisters in Christ because I did not feel safe opening up to them. Brethren, that's a symptom. It's not a good symptom. The symptom of health is when we can get vulnerable with each other and know that just as I call upon the name of my God, and, and, and there are going to be some skeletons in our closet that is between you and God alone. I understand it. Just ask Julie. But there are times when we need each other, and God has used us as vehicles, as vessels of compassion, vessels of holding each other up, if you will, in the way of helping one another so that we can take all our ugly warts that we feel comfortable enough to say, can you pray with me? Can you help hold my hand through this moment that I'm struggling with in life? And what do we do? Do we use it? Do we say, I don't want anything to do with you now? What do we do? See, brethren, church is not all easy, right? It's, it's ugly. And it's a lot uglier if we, the more and more we open up to every single skeleton in every closet of this room, it is very ugly. There's things said in our hearts that we would never say out loud that reveal ourselves. What about the things that are going on in the midst of relationships about one another, to one another. And so here are the consequences. So if we want to heal, very simply, here's the things that we do. We deal with them. We actually take our messy lives and we intertwine them. Now, I wanna make this caveat. I don't make too many caveats anymore. I used to do a ton of them, but it takes up too much time in the sermon so I can hit the message. Caveat is very clear. If someone refuses to, to live for the Lord, I'm not talking about someone who is weak. I'm not, someone, not speaking of someone who is um, giving into temptation. And that's someone who could be living in sin. Should not be living in sin, naturally. But they're struggling. Weak. And brethren, we're all weak. Just depends on how we want. If I want to compare myself to someone else, I might be stronger but before my God, I'm weak. I need his strength. If a brother or sister in Christ is refusing to repent, they don't care about their life, that is not weakness. That is rebellion. That is not what I'm talking about. When someone's going to live that way, they need to be called out because their soul is, is too precious and valuable. <laughs> They don't have to be called out publicly necessarily. I think we've added a lot of tradition in, in, along those lines. Everything should be done as discreetly as possible. When needed, it can be public, and maybe at times it should be public. There, there are situations that I cannot just lump them all in to one statement. 
But here's the reality. We deal with brethren, discipline brethren in those situations. And that's why not just 2 Peter chapter 2, but Hebrews chapter 12, right? That's how God deals with us. He disciplines us. But how does he discipline us? We might be scourged. We might be, quote, unquote, spanked by our God, metaphorically speaking, naturally. But that discipline is out of genuine love for us. He cares for his children, right? If he did not do that, we are told by Scripture that if that was the case, we would be illegitimate and not sons if he did not care and he did not love us and discipline us. And so we emulate our Heavenly Father. We discipline when needed. But when someone is not rebellious, when someone is saying, I am struggling in this life, I'm guilty of these sins, I've been living in this sin, and I need your help. If we would be patient and long-suffering, and here's the thing about patience and long-suffering. Unfortunately, among some of us, we want days, we want hours, we want minutes, and we want seconds, we want weeks, we want months. When is it so that I know I've passed the point of being patient, and now we're supposed to deal with them like we deal with a repentant person or an unrepentant person? I'm telling you right now, you look at your life, And the fact that you've been spared by our God after years of whatever you struggle with, even when you are blind to some of your own struggles, should tell you just how patient God is with you. And I believe you can be patient much more than maybe what you currently practice. It does not excuse sin. It does not pardon it. It does not sweep it under a rug. But patience and long-suffering deals with it and it deals with it lovingly and you pray diligently on their behalf you don't write off saying okay you know we're supposed to withdraw our fellowship from a brother sister in christ and i I remember very clearly and i've said this before here i remember there was a time when in hindsight i look back and going i didn't know the difference between someone who was rebellious and someone who was weak because in my mind they're one of the same they're still sinning therefore withdraw from them if they don't stop Tell that to someone who has been struggling with, I mean, as mentioning this particular family, who struggles with this particular addiction. Um, this happened over here a number of years back. And, and years later, he still struggles with that same addiction. Do you write them off? Do you work with them? I mean, you talk about the idea of praying on their behalf diligently. It doesn't stop after one week or one month. And it doesn't end with just the prayers. Right? The whole church, the whole purpose of church is us being in, involved in each other's lives. And we don't do a great job at it. We, we may do some small things like we have our group gatherings. And we may have someone in our home from time to time. But brethren... How intertwined are all of our lives? And I get it. We live busy lives. We live in a great different locations from each other. I get it. So there are obstacles that way. But how involved are we with each other's lives so that when these moments come, we can be with each other, pray with each other, and ultimately, right here, strengthen the hands that are weak? That's healing. And Jesus uses not just the fact that our sins are forgiven as healing, But while we live in this world and while there is brokenness going on in and through our lives, 
we can actually be the conduits. We can be the very individuals that live like Jesus lived and be there for each other. And not just once in a couple of times a week see each other and then deal with life then. That's what I'm talking about. Real quickly, if we were to realize or when we realize that we are really broken people, here's what happens. I become more compassionate. If I act like I have my act together, and sometimes I think I can deceive myself in think, thinking that I do, then I become a little bit hardened to you and your plight. Become a little less understanding. I don't think things as thoroughly through because I'm not thinking about the way you are handling things. I'm thinking of how I think you should handle things. Different way of dealing with life. I'm not in your... I'm not in your footsteps. I don't have your shoes on. I need to understand that I don't understand everything about what's going on in your context of life. But I'll be there with you. And I'll try to understand the best that I can to be compassionate about your situation because I don't have everything. And usually when we do get more understanding about the situation, we become more understanding toward the individual. It's usually helpful. Ultimately, we strive for solutions. Rather than grumble about what sin or weakness you have, we strive for solutions. That's the difference between a church that doesn't do and a church that is doing. We're solution finders to build up the body, and we reach a broken world. And if we are doing that, the church gets messier and messier and messier because, guess what? If we're reaching a broken world, they come into the body of Christ that affects our congregation and this congregation doesn't look like it's got it all together it looks like broken people who are a community of people who are trying to work together and hold each other's hands until that day when we're finally relieved from this groaning body of sin and have everlasting joy it's not all fun and games up until then even if we count it all joy it's because not everything is all joy we just have to work through these moments I said that. I'm going to finish with this quick invitation because after the sermon is done, when our stream is done, there's going to be an announcement to be made. And I'll share with you some things that are going to be difficult to share but needed. But brethren, please, please realize that if your brother or sister wants to open up to you, there's a story that you may not be ready for, realize the depth of. Be there for them. And be there for them beyond 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock in the mornings. Okay? We do that, we will be better for it. Our church will grow a little closer, maybe even possibly a lot closer for the glory of God. And we'll be better if you're a child of God and you're struggling, I hope this sermon helps you to realize these messages are to help us to deal with things in a better way, in a biblical way. And if you're here this morning and you're not a child of God, this is what the congregation of God's people all over the world are supposed to be like, what I'm talking about this morning. It is, and I was not here for the sermon that Steve gave, it is in a sense a hospital, a place of recovery. 
a place until we finally get fully healed. And that day is when we look at our Lord face to face. When we don't have these issues anymore. But until then, we do. On this side of heaven, we have them. And how are we going to respond? And if you want to be part of that kingdom, the kind of kingdom that is true Christianity, where through the midst of all of our weaknesses, we struggle together, not against each other, then I beg you to come and be invited into this very invitation where Jesus can heal your broken heart, can make you see, and to make you stand up and have a healing in your life. That's the invitation. Let's together we stand and sing this song.